Welcome to all of you. It's good to worship with you. Let's continue our time of worship by taking God's word and opening to the book of Genesis this morning. The book of Genesis, chapter 3, the book of beginnings. We're starting a, a new series today at Harvest Decatur called A New Look at the Old Testament. This is a series that will be team taught by our elders. And I get the wonderful privilege today of beginning this series. And of course, I want to start in the book of Genesis. And let me start by asking this question as we're looking at the Old Testament and going to be spending some time in the Old Testament this summer. I get this question a lot. Why should we read and study the Old Testament? Why should we do it? We got the New Testament. You know, out with the old and with the new, right? <laughs> Why study the Old Testament? And, and I, I like to answer that question with another question, okay? Not, not to be argumentative, just to kind of tease out the answer to that question. So when people ask me that question, I ask in response, what important information would we miss out on if we didn't have the Old Testament? Y'all ever think about that? Well, let me ask it another way. What would we be ignorant about if we didn't have the Old Testament? The truth is we'd be ignorant about a lot of stuff. We'd be ignorant about ourselves, humanity, God, creation, the world, sin, the reason our Savior needed to come into this world and save us from our sin. And, and you might say, well, the New Testament tells us all about that. Pastor Tony tells us all about Jesus. Yeah, okay, it does tell us all about Jesus, the Savior. But the Old Testament tells us why we need Jesus to come and save us. We need the Old Testament. Yeah. And you know what the Old Testament tells us about as well? And this is the subject of my message today. The Old Testament tells us about sin. Sin. And I know in our day, I mean, that might sound kind of like a primitive notion, this idea of sin. We don't like talking about sin. Pastor Tony, don't you know that's a taboo subject, sin. We don't talk about it. We don't think about it. We don't like to invoke that word at all. But let, let me just counter by saying this. You know, I think built into the human psyche, all of us, even those who might deny the Bible, there is a category for sin. People like to talk about mistakes or errors and and maybe maybe they diminish the sin in their own lives but they they accentuate some other person's sin so maybe they diminish you know let's say a sexual sin in their own lives but they like to elevate or look at other people's sins the sins of racism the sins of injustice or maybe if it's the other way you like to emphasize this sin and not this sin and all of that I'm not going to say that's wrong. That, that's part of who we are as human beings. We are moral creatures. We can't help but make moral judgments about our world and about other people. Why are we like that? Because we, as the Old Testament tells us, are made in the image of God. We are moral creatures at our root. So we need to deal with this issue of sin. And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to ask, where did sin come from? Where did it come from? Why is it part of our world? And here's the real question I want to answer this morning. How do we escape sin? How do we overcome sin in this world? Don't you want to know that? Believe it or not, the answer to all of those questions and many more are found In one chapter of the Old Testament, one of the first chapters in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 3, 
And what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the root of sin, the results of sin, and the remedy for sin. Okay? Very simple. The root of sin, the results of sin, the remedy for sin. Let's start with this. The root of sin. Where did sin come from? Where did it come from? Well, in the first few pages of the Old Testament, God created the entire world in Genesis 1 and 2. He created the entire world out of nothing. Ex nihilo, he created it. He created the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies. He created fish, birds, animals, and vegetation. He created water and wind and skies. And you know what God says in Genesis 1 and 2? You know what he says about all the things that he created? It was good, 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 good. All of it was good. Everything that he created was good. In fact, the only thing that wasn't good was that man was alone when God created man. The pinnacle of God's great great creative work was man, and it was not good for the man to be alone, so he made something even gooder. He made the woman, and he gave her to the man. And it's beautiful, and it's glorious. And he put these two in this garden of perfection called Eden. He gave them work to do in that garden, good work, pleasing work. He gave them this edict from on high, be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1, verse 28. He walked with them in the cool of the day. God had fellowship with him. With them, Adam and Eve both, everything was good, really good. And God gave them absolute freedom to enjoy his creation and eat from any tree in the garden. But he did give them one prohibition, and y'all know this. He said, you can eat from any tree in the Garden of Eden. You can eat from every tree in the Garden of Eden, including the tree of life, but you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. And the day that you eat from that tree, you will die, he tells them. That's the one That's the one prescription that God gave Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Well, here's what happened. This is the, by the way, you know, children's Bibles, they always have Genesis 3, some some rendering of Genesis 3, and this is the part your kids want to skip. They love Genesis 1 and 2, all the animals and God creating everything. They could just, I don't want to, I don't want to read that, Daddy. You got to read this to them. This is so important. They need to know this. Here's what God's word says. Chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And you might ask in verse one, your kids might ask, who's the serpent? Who's this mysterious creature? Well, we know from other passages in the Bible that this is the great enemy of Satan, the enemy of God, Satan. But just to be clear, this is not, this is God's enemy. This is not God's equal, okay? I feel like, you know, that we're not living in some dualistic world where it's like God has a lot of power and Satan has just as much power. No, 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 no. Satan is God's creation. God created Satan. God is more powerful than Satan, but at the same time, Satan is God's enemy. Satan's arch enemy, even, if you want to use that term. And he's not just the arch enemy of Satan. He's also the arch enemy of He's not just the arch enemy of God. He's also the arch enemy of human beings. He's our enemy. Satan actually was cast out of the presence of God because he wanted to be worshipped himself. He wanted God's power. You can read about this in Ezekiel 28 and Revelation 12 and other places. And God judged him and flung him out of his presence. 
And Satan was so deceptive, he was so sneaky that he actually took a third of the angels with him to be a part of the demonic horde that tempts us and is part of our world, our metaphysical world right now. He's not only the enemy of God, he's also the enemy of mankind. Because look what happens in verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice what he's doing. He's questioning God's integrity here. God really say that? Did he now? And he's trying as well to get Eve to question God's integrity in this moment. And look how Eve responds. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. No, 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 snake, we can do this. But God did say you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now let's just notice a few things here in the text. The first thing that you need to notice is that Eve does good here first. She trusts God, she says what God told her, and she distrusts Satan. That's good. Good job out of Eve. If she had maintained that course, things would have gone better for her. So she, she does good here at first. Notice the second thing here in the text. Notice that in this garden of perfection, I just want to point this out. God allowed Satan to talk to Eve. Everybody with me? God allowed Satan to tempt Eve. However you, however you put together your theological reasoning about this passage, you've got to reckon with that. Put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. God allowed Satan in there to tempt Eve. He didn't shoo him off. He didn't say, don't talk. He didn't protect. He wanted her to be tested. He allowed her to be tempted in this way. Let's keep reading. But the serpent, the crafty, the shrewd serpent, the sneaky serpent, said to the woman, you will not surely die. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the great technique of the evil one, isn't it? Getting us to doubt God's goodness, getting us to doubt God's word. That's, he's still doing that. That's his grift that's what he does. He, he gets us to forget about God's word, about God's goodness, about God's word, about his commandments to us. And you know what the sad thing about this, even as you read this, you know, I read a lot of commentaries this last week and they talk about this passage as being paradigmatic for the human experience. Satan's still doing this. Satan still does, tries to get us to doubt these things. And what's really sad about this, as we read this, what's sad about it is it works he gets us to forget God's goodness, and it works. We are a forgetful species, human beings. Aren't we? We forget. Let me give you three things that Satan does here. And you, you just decide for yourself if Satan is still doing these things today in your life, in the lives of your children, in the lives of your small group members that you pray for. 
These are in your notes. Three things Satan does in the midst of temptation. Here's what he does. The first thing he does is he marginalizes God's goodness. He marginalizes God's goodness. God is holding out on you, Eve. He's holding out on you. That's, that's what Satan tries to convince her of. Is Satan still working that angle? Yes, he is. You better believe he's still working that angle. You know, God's holding you back. God is a mean, unmerciful bully in the sky. If he really loved you, he would let you do X, Y, and Z. And, and Satan marginalizes God's goodness, marginalizes God's goodness. Forget the fact that God has loved you and given you all these good things. Forget the fact that God has given a Eve every good thing, has not withheld anything from her except this one tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden. He takes her eyes off of that and puts it only on the temptation, the, the one thing that God didn't allow. That's how he marginalizes God's goodness. Here's the second thing that Satan does. He minimizes sin's consequences. He minimizes sin's consequences. You won't die. Satan says to Eve, it's, it's, it's not that big a deal. God's not going to punish you. Our Ken Hughes, he says the following about Genesis 3. And he links it to our own day. And he says the doctrine of divine judgment is the very first doctrine that people deny. Satan has been attacking it from the very beginning. God's not going to judge you. He's just a big teddy bear in the sky. You got nothing to worry about. In fact, he's holding out on you. Satan minimizes sin's consequences. Here's a third thing that he does in temptation. He maximizes sin's appeal. He maximizes sin, sin's appeal. Satan says, you will be like God if you do this thing. That's why he's holding back. That's why he's keeping you away from it. Satan tells her a whole new world will open up to you. But here's what Satan neglects to tell them. And this is what we know from the text even before in Genesis 1 and 2. They're already like God. Did you know that? God created them in his image. They are in the image of God. They're already like God. He's not focusing on that. You'll be more like God. You'll be a deified being. And, and this is the exact sin that Satan fell into. We know from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and the book of Revelation that Satan's pride was his undoing. His vanity caused him to seek what God had in terms of glory. And it led to his fall. And he got a third of the angels to go along with him. And now he's trying to get Eve to go along with him as well. And he's appealing to her pride. You will be like God if you eat it. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he called pride or self-conceit. He calls it the essential vice and the utmost evil in humanity. Pride. Pride. He believed, like many Christians before him, Augustine and others, that all other sins stem from this sin. Here's what he writes. You can read this on the screen. He says, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. That's what he's trying to tap into. Satan is with Eve. 
in order to get her to sin. And the other sneaky part of this temptation is that there's this half measure of truth in what Satan is saying. You know, that's why Moses said he was crafty in the first verse. He is crafty. The reality is that their eyes would be opened if they ate that fruit. They would have a deeper knowledge of good and evil, but the half truth denies the fact that's already true about them. They're already like God. They're already made in the image of God. And they are innocent like God. If they eat of that fruit, they're going to be more unlike God. Because God is innocent. God is free of sin. And yet if they sin, they're going to be more unlike God, not more like him, if they eat of that fruit. Satan doesn't tell that. He withholds that from them. So what happens? If you do read this with your kids at night and even walk them through this passage, make sure you emphasize the sadness of what happens next. Don't rush past this. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good. Isn't that amazing how good is corrupted now? Everything was good, 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 good. Now sin is seen as good. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and eight. In the words of one Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, she took and ate so simple an act, so hard it's undoing. So simple an act, so hard it's undoing. And look at this at the end of verse six. And she also gave some to her husband. Hello, where, where's he been? Who was with her? And he ate. My assumption from verse 6 is that Adam just stood by and let his wife be persuaded by this creature. He wasn't a good husband to her. He should have chased that stupid snake out of there and protected his wife. But instead, he just let her be tempted. And then he, he disobeyed God too. And by the way, when you read about this in the book of Romans, we work through Romans. In Romans 5, you know who God holds responsible for this? In the garden, he holds Adam responsible for it. Check out Romans 5 for more on that. They're both guilty before God for the actions that they did, for their sin. This is the great event in human history that changed everything. This is the great sin of our forefather, Adam, and our foremother, Eve, that brought down an avalanche of consequences on our world. This is why our world is so messed up. You want to know? And this is why sin and death are so ubiquitous in our world. If you want to know why, here's why. Look no further than Genesis 3. This is where it all began. Now, let's talk about the results of sin. So that's the root of sin. Let's talk about the results of sin. And the results are many. I don't have time to cover all of them this morning. And actually, when I preached through Genesis 3 a few years back, I had several sermons for this entire chapter. So I don't, I don't have time to go in detail here. But let me just touch on a few of the results that came from this sin. First of all, look at verse 22 in your Bible. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, God forbid that they would live forever in this state of sinfulness. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim 
and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Can't eat from the tree of life anymore, Adam and Eve, because you're in a sinful state. Who wants to live forever in a sinful state? I don't want to. So the tree of life has to wait. God puts the tree of life on ice until Revelation. You can read more about the tree of life in Revelation 20 through 22. So Adam and Eve were flung out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin. They can't live in paradise anymore. They can't eat of the tree of life anymore. Look at some of the other consequences of sin. Look at verse 16. God instituted pain and childbirth for the woman as a result of her sin. She usurped the authority of her husband, and so now he will rule over her, says God. God instituted pain as well in breadwinning for the husband. Adam failed as a leader. He failed in his leadership role in the garden, so God is now going to afflict his work. Before Genesis 3, there was work in the garden. There was, but it was good. It was fun. It was easy. Now, because of sin, work is going to be burdensome and hard with thorns and thistles. Look at verse 19. By the sweat of your face, Adam, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And look at the immediate effects of sin. I really want to zero in on this. Look at the immediate effects of sin on this couple. Look at verse 7. This is right after they disobeyed God, right after they ate the forbidden fruit. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. In other words, what's being referenced here? They lost their innocence. They lost their innocence. They became aware of their own mortality and they opened up the door to greater opportunities for sin and for tragedy. Here's another consequence. Look at verse 8. They lost their tight-knit relationship with God. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of... This should be a great sound. Hey, God's coming. We're going to commune with God. Yeah, let's go see him. Now they have shame. Now they have regret. Now they have guilt. They have to hide from God. The Lord God, they they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, as if they could, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? As if God doesn't know, right? Where are you? You almost get the sense that God is trying to draw out more than just where are you from Adam. Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, "Who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now pay attention here because this is where we start to see the consequences of sin start to really snowball out of control. This is where the the wheels fall off. Because the sin just starts to multiply here more and more. This This is the first fight between husband and wife in human history. There's been a lot since then. 
And, and notice their tactic as they start to come to terms with their own guilt and how they failed God. Look at Adam's response. Listen to what he says to God. Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Did you hear that? Did you hear what, she, what he said? And, and I, it's not just the woman. Who's he ultimately blaming here? He's blaming God. God, I was doing great here in the Garden of Eden till you sent this Jezebel down here to be with me. Now she's tripped me up. I was perfectly happy without her, and now she made me sin. He's blaming God, isn't he? I mean, forget the fact that when he first saw Eve, he was just over the moon. He was, this was the perfect creation for him. In fact, you know what Adam did when he first saw Eve? He started quoting poetry. That's what men do when they find the woman of their dreams. They quote poetry. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He was over the moon when he saw her for the first time. But now, now, she's the reason for his sin. He blames her and he blames God. You know, this is paradigmatic for our own day. What is it that people do oftentimes when they come to terms with their own sin? What do they do? What do we do? We blame shift, don't we? It's, it's one of the ways that we try to salve our guilty consciences. We blame somebody else. We try to, you know, it's, it's my parents. That, that's the reason I'm the way I am. I do the things I do. It's my kids. Blame the kids. It's my husband. It's my wife. This, this is as old as Genesis 3 doing this. Blaming other people. And notice what Eve does. Eve does the same thing. She follows the lead of her husband in this instance. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done, Eve? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's not my fault, God. The devil made me do it. How long have people been blaming the devil for their stuff? And implicitly what she's saying here is, Similar to Adam, it, it's your fault, God. You let the devil get in here. You didn't chase him off like you should have. The devil caused this, and that's why I ate. So ultimately, it's, it's your fault, God, for these things. And that's when God starts dishing out the punishments here. And he starts with the serpent. Let me, I want to spend the rest of our time just talking about the punishments, okay? Not because... It's super fun to talk about punishments and what the result of this is. But here's what I want to show you. Tucked inside of these punishments. In fact, tucked inside of that punishment for the serpent is the greatest promise in the Bible. Because even from the very beginning, God had a plan to remedy this sin that was committed by Adam and Eve. Even from the very beginning, he knew what he was going to do. And how he was going to make this situation right. So let me show you this. First of all, look at verse 14. He's going to punish the serpent. He's going to punish Satan. Then later he punishes the woman. And then he's going to punish the man. But let's start with the serpent. The Lord said to the serpent, verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. 
On your belly, serpent, you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I assume from this verse that before this instance, the serpent actually walked on all fours, had four legs like the other livestock of the field. I actually, when I think of Satan in the Garden of Eden, I actually think of that gecko from the Geico commercials. <laughs> this lizardy looking creature walking on his hind legs, speaking in a British accent. Whenever I think about Satan, he's got a British accent. I don't know why. But God here now punishes the serpent by taking away his legs. You might say, well, why is he punishing the creature here? Well, he's punishing the creature in order to be a reminder to all of us. Every time we see a snake, every time we see a serpent, every time, every time we see that livestock with no legs, we're reminded about what took place in the garden, about what our foremother and our forefather did in the Garden of Eden. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. You will slither on your belly, serpent, in other words, you will be an embarrassment. That's not a good thing to eat the dust of the earth. That's an embarrassment. That's, you will be an embarrassment to the animal kingdom. And can I just say, for the record, snakes are an embarrassment to the animal kingdom. I mean, Indiana Jones was right to hate snakes. That was the only accurate thing in that movie, was that he hated snakes. <laughs> snakes are... Stick out their tongues, they've got fangs, they're nasty, sometimes they have poison. It's a little reminder to all of us about what happens every time you see a snake, okay? Every time you kill a snake in your yard, you just remember what your forefather, what your foremother did in the Garden of Eden. And then after this judgment, God turns his attention away from that physical creature, the snake, to the metaphysical creature, the devil. And here's what he says in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan. Now he's talking to Satan, okay? And the woman. You deceived the woman by your actions. You made her fall. Well, this is not the end. You, you guys will hate each other from here on out, okay? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, Everybody looking at verse 15? He. Does everybody see that? He. Not she. Not, but he. That's fascinating. Not she, but he. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What are we talking about here? Go ahead and write this down as number three in your notes. Here's the remedy for sin. At the very beginning, this is what theologians refer to, Genesis 3.15, as the proto-evangelium. Proto means first, evangelium means gospel. Here's the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. The first gospel. This is a shadowy, prophetic foreshadowing of Christ that becomes reality for us in the New Testament. So let's talk about this proto-evangelium. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And if you're like me, 
even reading that, even now, after all these years, I, I still have a number of questions about this text. So let's just unpack these one at a time. The first question you might ask is, who's the offspring of Satan? Who's the offspring of Satan? You might say, I didn't even know Satan was married. How does he have offspring? Who is the offspring of Satan? Well, let's be clear about this. The seed of Satan isn't Satan's literal children. The offspring of Satan is anyone who, along with Satan, sets themselves up against God. That would include the fallen angels that went with him. That would include the pagan kingdoms of the ancient world that were controlled by Satan and that worshipped false gods. That would also include, Jesus makes this clear, it also includes any who reject the free gift of salvation and who dies as an unregenerate unbeliever. They are also, according to the scripture, the offspring of Satan. Jesus made this very clear in his ministry. He called the Jewish leaders who opposed him, he called them a brood of vipers. You remember that? That's not a compliment. He called them a brood of vipers, and Jesus says this in John 8, 44. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. The reality is that anyone and everyone who opposes God and his son, Jesus Christ, is a child of the devil, And those who belong to the devil will suffer the same fate as the devil. They will be cast into the lake of fire forever in judgment for their sins. Revelation 19 through 21 are clear about this. So that's the offspring of Satan. So if that's the offspring of Satan, then the next question is, who's the offspring of the woman? Look again at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring, Who's her offspring? The answer to that question is found in this prophecy concerning Satan's demise. Because in the middle of verse 15, God says, He, your offspring, he, shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise or crush his heel. So the offspring is the he. Who is the he? In verse 15, who is the he? God says there will be enmity between your offspring and her offspring, but offspring, just so you know, it's a little bit of Hebrew here for you. Offspring is a feminine noun. So even as you construct that next phrase, you would would think it would say, because it's a feminine noun, it shall crush your offspring, or maybe she shall crush your head. But it doesn't say she, it doesn't say it, it says he. Who's the he? I had a professor at Moody who used to tell this story. He said in Sunday school, when he would teach the kids, no matter what question he asked, the kids would always respond, Jesus. They were just conditioned to do this. They'd ask some question, Jesus, it's Jesus. And so he decided to play this little trick on them, and he started his lesson by saying, okay, kids, what's small and furry and lives in trees and eats nuts? And one of the little boys raised his hand and says, well, you know what, teacher, it sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer has to be Jesus. Because we're in Sunday school. The answer's got to be Jesus. I'm not trying to trick you. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, 
the first gospel, he shall crush your head, Satan. Who's the he? He shall crush your head and you shall crush his heel. Look at the end of verse. Who's the his? Who's that referring to? It's Jesus. Who else could it be? Crushing the head of Satan. Who else could it be? In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 16, verse 20, we just read this not that long ago, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the symbolism, by the way, makes sense. Jesus was struck by the serpent. He took a mortal wound, but he was able to survive. He was struck in the heel. Christ, in response, gave a mortal blow to Satan, and he crushed Satan's head. And we still await the ultimate defeat of Satan. According to Romans 16, 20, that passage. The he in verse 15 is Christ. And by the way, the seed of the woman is Christ. And and I'll add to that, it's also all of those who follow Christ who are at war with the seed of Satan. We're part of that. Those who believe. In fact, fact, let let me just distill this down to one very important applicational point. You know, when the Lord looks out out on our world and he sees everything happening right now, the Lord doesn't see our world with all the, you know, geopolitical alliances and all the different ethnicities and all of that. When the Lord looks out on our world, he really only sees two ethnicities. He sees two categories. He sees children of the Lord and he sees the children of Satan. That's it. And there's no third option. There's nothing else. It's, it's that. That's all. That's how the, war, the Lord sees our world. They are the children of God and they are the children of Satan. They are the saved and the unsaved. Right? There are believers and unbelievers. There's the sheep and the goats in Jesus' language elsewhere. There's the wheat and the weeds. And that's it. And so here's the application. Here's the question you've got to ask yourself. Whose team are you on? Who do you belong to? Do you belong to the seed of the woman? Do you belong to Jesus Christ or do you belong to Satan? Are you part of his offspring? Those are your options. Who do you belong to? Let me say it this way. The serpent or the serpent crusher? I don't know about you, but I I belong to the serpent crusher. I'm on his team. And all the way back in Genesis 3, thousands of years before Jesus was incarnated as a human being, God prophesied, prophesied the demise of the devil and all of those who reject Christ all the way back in the Garden of Eden when humanity was at its lowest ebb. God promised victory for us. God promised that the head of the serpent would be squashed. He will squash your head, Satan. Who do you belong to, Harvest Decatur? Who do you belong to? I'll close with this. 
Actually, worship team, once you come up, we're gonna, we're gonna close with song, and I hope you're ready to sing to the serpent crusher. You guys remember, there's this great story in the book of Luke after Jesus was re- resurrected from the dead, and he starts walking with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Y'all remember that? It's a, it's a great moment. And, you know, as Luke tells us that story, they didn't recognize Jesus at first. And, and Luke says that Jesus started to show these two disciples on the road to Emmaus about himself from the scriptures. He started opening up the Old Testament and telling them about himself. And, and actually, it reads this way. Jesus said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things? be bitten in the heel by the, the serpent? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know, I often fantasize about being there with Jesus in that moment, don't you? I would have loved to have been there on the road to Emmaus. And I think, that's, I think that's why I like watching that, The Chosen. I think Dallas Jenkins fantasizes about this too. He's walking around with Jesus. And that's why he makes movies about it. And I've often wondered, you know, here's, here's Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And he's, he's two disciples. I don't even know who these disciples are. They're just random disciples. And Jesus opens up the scriptures and he talks to them about who he is and how, how he's fulfilled He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And these two disciples said, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road, when he opened up the scriptures? I would have loved to have been there for that. I would have loved to have my heart burn like that. And I don't know what exactly Jesus said there, but let me speculate. I bet, at least at the start, Jesus went to Genesis 3.15. And I bet he told those two disciples. Guys, you know that story y'all been reading since Jewish Sunday school when you were kids? Remember what God told Satan in the Garden of Eden? God said, he shall crush your head and you shall crush his heel. I bet Jesus told them, I'm the he. I'm that he. Come follow me, disciples. Who do you belong to, Harvest Decatur? The serpent or the serpent crusher?